Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash picture lock. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Everyone says, I wish I was in your shoe, I wish I was in your shoe. The people, the hundreds of people that wish they were in my shoe don't know the hint of it. If they were in my shoe, they would cry like babies. Picture Lock on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. Eighth grade hits theaters this weekend, and I have Picture Lock contributor Richie Winsler on to give his thoughts on the film. So in the spirit of middle school awkwardness and judging, <laughs> I have a great lineup of interviews for you. I talk with the hilarious Melissa Miller Costanzo of All These Small Moments. We talk about our love for people to be quiet and leave us alone during movies, <laughs> but more importantly, the well-received film. I also talk with producer-director Robin Hauser about her documentary film, Bias. In the film, she puts her own biases on display to explore the nature of implicit bias. Finally, I speak with Erica Cohn, producer-director of The Judge. The documentary revolves around the first woman appointed to a Sharia court in the Middle East. Plus, I have answers to the question of the week from a couple of weeks ago. We did have one week off. I've been super busy getting ready for dc black film festival so last week i just couldn't get it together but i'm back this week i'm gonna try to stay as i have been as super consistent as possible but with the film festival coming up i'm definitely putting a lot of attention and time into that but you should start hearing from some of those filmmakers uh pretty soon here but hey that's not what's going on this week it's what i just talked about and that's all ahead <laughs> on Picture Lock. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Woody Fu. I'm the writer and director of the short film Asian Man, White Woman. Uh, you can follow me at WoodyFu.com, which has my videos and bio and a bunch of other fun stuff. You are listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. And out this weekend, eighth grade hits theaters. I have Picture Lock contributor Richie Wensler here to talk about the film and what you can expect. Richie, what's going on, man? Oh, nothing. Just enjoying this beautiful day outside. How about you? <laughs> I hear you. Uh, I could say the same, but I'm a little, I'm a little bit swamped as of late. But you know, I, it's all good. Yep, yep. It's same, same, same hill. <laughs> all right, man. So you were able to see uh, a preview of Eighth Grade. Could you one set it up for the audience what the film is all about, and then two give us your thoughts? Yeah. So Eighth Grade. I thought was a honest and realistic look at that cross world of life that we all come across before high school. Um, so it's it's set 
uh, during the last week of eighth of eighth grade for for main character Kayla, who's portrayed by Elsie Fissel, who I think is this is going to be her breakthrough performance, and I think that she will have a future in films. Um, if you didn't know, she she previously was the voice of Agnes, the, the little girl from the first two Despicable Me films. So for his first first film uh, out the gate directing, I thought that uh, comedian Bo Bo uh his directorial debut was solid, and I thought that he also did a good job in showcasing how kids uh, these days are more glued to their phones and social media, but they don't make a statement about it. But instead, instead showing how the younger generation is more adapt adapted to these days, and as I say, it does. This film doesn't want to be hip, hip or cool or anything, but it just gives like a more uh, grounded look at life. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, you know, uh, for those of us that had good middle school years, uh, will this, you know, and those that maybe don't, and I'm thinking more of those that didn't, you know, how, how does this film kind of register on the scale of, you know, just ultimately telling a little bit about life because from all the things that I've seen and heard about the film, it's almost documentary-esque in terms of how, like, it just really shows what really kind of goes on. Yep, I mean, I, I would hate to hate to admit this, but I'm, I'm putting myself out there. I could I could relate to this film a lot because those times at this film while I watched it, it was like, yep, I basically did the same thing back in the day. Like so, it was it was super relatable it, from from my perspective, and I also liked how the look of the film too, what what seems so like trivial and, and all that stuff. Looking back at it now, how they made it look like it's 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 much more bigger, and like the end all be all for for a character like like Kayla, you know. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting thing, and I'm I'm gonna be talking with. Um... Uh, Melissa Miller Costanzo in a little bit about her film and uh, she said something that was uh, very similar in terms of how even in high school everything seems so gargantuan it's the end of the world etc and you know obviously with middle school that's really when our hormones are firing off and you know um, that awkwardness I think everyone feels it whether you're you know the cool kid on school at school or you're the nerd like everyone has some bit of awkwardness I, I think it's just a matter of how much uh you might, might actually admit it but Richie if you could for the audience you know what how would you grade the film uh well I would give this a B plus and if you must know A Trainful has delivered us a double solid film well, you know you can't go wrong with A24. They always are given, <laughs> just given the best films of, of the year, or at least the films that should be talked about by the end of the year, each year. And uh, so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to checking this thing out. Uh, Richie, how can folks find your reviews outside of PictureLockShow.com? Well, you can um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at the Mr. Richard. Uh, so it's at... Uh, T-H-E-M-L Richard and then I also won a little blog blog site called Up, Up in the Balcony so um, I usually post all my reviews that, that I do full reviews uh, on my Twitter as well Awesome Richie Winsler, Picture Lock contributor I appreciate you coming by to talk about 8th grade which is out in theaters this weekend No problem, definitely check it out
Hi everyone, I am Daria Jok and I'm a co-writer and director of a feature called Crystal Swan and you're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson, you're listening to Picture Lock and in all these small moments, a teenage boy's infatuation with a woman he sees on the bus further complicates his already tumultuous adolescence. I have writer-director Melissa Miller-Constanzo on the line with me. Melissa, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you so much, Kevin. I'm so happy to be here talking to you. Oh, man, it's my pleasure to have you. Melissa, the first question I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? Well, I, I don't remember a time that I didn't love it, but I have a very specific memory. Uh, I must have been in high school at the time, uh, which is dating myself, but that's fine. And I was on a double date, and we went to go see the movie Do the Right Thing in the theaters. And I remember the guy that I was with tried to put his arm around me, and I was so mortified by that because I was watching the truth. Like, this movie <laughs> was, like, really, like, affecting me. And, I, I mean, my whole body was shaking, and I was crying. And I mean, it was it it was a, just a life-changing experience, and this guy was trying to, like, get busy with me, and I was so upset about it. <laughs> That I, you know, threw his arm off of me because I was going through this transcendental situation. So I think that, to me, I think do the right thing for me was just when I was like, holy sh**, movies can just really take you somewhere. <laughs> oh, man. You know, Melissa, this, that, this is definitely one of the memorable answers to that question. Um, you know, I love that because similarly, uh, I hate when people go into a theater and they talk to me, like I, I let people know ahead of time, like if you don't have anything that it has to do with the movie that you're going to say, yeah. that is not witty and like actually funny. Don't talk to me during the movie. No, don't talk to me. And, the, and you know, I think now being a freelancer and, you know, I always say that my, my favorite time to watch a movie is like in the middle of the day on a weekday by myself. Like I, I don't even like going to the movies with people. I don't understand it. Like I just need to be like completely focused and I don't need other people distracting me or like trying to like <laughs> grab my popcorn, you know? Right. Melissa, <laughs> it's we, my popcorn. we're on the same page, especially for <laughs> me as a critic. Like, yeah. I used to, I remember like in college when it was like, yeah, I go to all these late night movies. But now like an older male and, you know, being a critic, like I'm like, let me go to the matinee when nobody's <laughs> there, no kids right. to start talking and all that. No yeah. Friday night dates. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we are definitely um, hitting on all c cylinders here. But right, Melissa, if right. you could take us from, um, you know, the girl that was uh, <laughs> giving the stiff arm to homeboy <laughs> <laughs> and do the right thing to like the woman that is now, you know, directing films with all these small moments. How did you break into the film industry? So I, I you know, I have an interesting history because um, my first job out of college and again, I'm dating myself. I remember like getting those like entertainment books and it listed like every management company in New York and you had to like fax them your resume and everything. So I did this like wide fax release and I got a response from a company, which I'm sure everybody, um, you know, they're huge is three arts entertainment, which is a talent management company. And it was my first job and I was the receptionist and, you know, I had a major chip on my shoulder and looking back on it now, like, you know, it was like the upright citizens brigade and like, you know, 
Dave Chappelle and just all these people that I was surrounded by and David Tell and Todd Berry and, you know, Tina Fey, all these people. I had no idea how lucky I was to be in that environment. I just knew I didn't want to be the receptionist. So that didn't last very long. Um, but I'm still in contact with a bunch of those people, which is really cool. And it's all come full circle. Uh, but I, you know, I started kind of in talent management and I did some development for, um, studios and such. And then I, I sort of branched out into production and, you know, being a PA is, you know, the best and the worst thing that will ever happen to you. And it like, I hated every minute of it, but I also learned set life. And so I recommend, you know, it, I, I just remember being on like a lift gate of a truck, like crying in the pouring rain and, you know, but they like break you down and build you up and you learn everything you need to know about production. And I hated it so much that I moved into the art department, um, which is a little more civilized. And from there, um, I had the opportunity on working on some really great movies like The Fighter and, and Precious. And I've also worked on some great TV shows, one of which was The Affair. And I was on the first season of that and, and I worked right near the writer's room. And so I got the idea to try to break in to writing and try to be the writer's assistant on the next season. And that didn't really work out, but the showrunner was so impressed with my script that she helped me get an agent. And from there, they helped set up the film. And, you know, when I was sitting down with my agents for the first time, they asked me, do you want to direct this? And I said, yes. And there was never any sort of question after <laughs> right. that. And, you know, it scared the, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, swear but it scared the shit out of me because I hadn't really directed anything yet. Um, but I, I figured I'd figure it out later when I was on set. I would fake it until I made it. You know? But yeah. yeah, so anyway, so then that ended up getting my movie made. And, you know, the rest is history. And I give people a lot of credit for, for believing in me and, and, and believing in my vision because I hadn't directed anything before. This was my first feature. But I did have all the below-the-line experience. And I think that, that once I was on set, that really helped me. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm talking with writer-director of All These Small Moments, Melissa Miller-Constanzo. Uh, Melissa, I, I just love, I love this story. I just, I, you know, I, I, you're such a visual um, storyteller, obviously, because I, I was there with you on that date, that uncomfortable date. <laughs> and then I was there with you as you like kind of worked your way closer to yeah. the writer room. Um, and so if we could, let's jump into all these small moments. Uh, sure. In your own words, what is the film all about? I mean, you know, you described the log line that I obviously came up with and you read it really well. <laughs> But that's what it is. It's a, it's about a kid who meets this woman on the bus and all the while the rest of his life is kind of falling apart. Um, and it's just about what this kid is going through. But the, it's also about the women in his life, his mother, the woman on the bus and this other girl he find, he is in the library with when he's excused from gym class. So it's his relationship with these three women and what they mean to him and his life moving forward. And I think it's a lot of it is also about... Um, crossing lines that you shouldn't cross. I mean, you know, he's attracted to this older woman and for whatever reason she is inviting it and they, they go down this road, which ultimately, you know, changes as they go down that road. But, you know, she has her own stuff going on and, and she, she allows this into her life, but she also knows at some point that she's, she's crossing a line and it, you know, it's, I'm making it sound, it's not very menacing. It's not like notes on a scandal. I mean, it's definitely a dramedy, but just the idea of playing with things that you, you, you know, you're not necessarily supposed to do 
and um, what you do in your mind when you have these thoughts and you, you can't act out on them. And at the same time, your family life is falling apart. And so you have no good role models moving forward because your parents are a mess. One of the things <laughs> as we talk, uh, I'm really interested in is because you, you served as the writer and director for the film. And even in the course of this conversation for the interview, we talked a lot about brief moments in life. And the thing about film that I really enjoy and love is that it can highlight those small moments in life and make it larger than life, literally, figuratively, on the big screen. But you're able to highlight um, some of the human experience. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the universal storytelling that goes into all these small moments? Yeah, I mean, I think this movie is also one that when you leave, it kind of makes you reflect on your own life. And and what I set out to do was to make a movie about all these things that happen when you're in high school and they seem just momentous and insurmountable. And as time passes, you do sort of get over them. But I don't think they ever leave. I think we're all made up of all these little moments that kind of carry you through adulthood and make you who you are. And, you know, you might not necessarily remember the name of your first boyfriend but I think that you remember how that felt when he kissed you for the first time in the hallway so Mm. I think those are the type of things that I wanted to explore and I think my movie in particular um, you know it's a linear film but I think you could extrapolate each little moment and it's its own vignette so it's a matter of taking all those vignettes and at the end kind of wrapping it up into a ball and saying this is the whole of the movie and these are the parts that made it the whole Totally makes sense. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been talking with the writer-director of all these small moments, Melissa Miller-Castanzo. Uh, Melissa, if, man, I don't, I don't really want to wrap this thing out because know, this is like... so much fun. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm really fascinated with um, the fact that, like, w- the things that you just highlighted, it's so true. You know, you might not remember um, the first boyfriend, but you remember the first kiss. You remember the butterflies you felt when you gave that hug for the first time in uh, high school. And, you know, all these little all these little things that, um, you know, as you said, they comprise who we are as human beings. So I'm kind of wondering, just in terms of like audience, you know, what's been the audience reception of the film so far? I mean, I, you know, I said it before, I think people take the time to reflect on their own life and think about all those things that lead up to it. And it depends who you're talking to. You could be talking to a, a wife who's having problems in her marriage, or you could be talking to a 16-year-old who's like, oh, yeah, man, I've totally been there. Um, I've, I, I've had feelings for someone and it wasn't reciprocated. So I think it's what I've loved doing is, is is talking to people and having them come up to me and see what perspective they're at. Like, are they an adult? Are they a kid? Are they looking back? Are they looking forward? Um, and that, that's been my experience that I think they can all latch on to something. And I even, you know, when I was, when I was interviewing DPs, uh, one of them said to me, like, I, I can't believe how much I bonded with each character in every phase of their life, whether it was a teenage girl and or, or an adult married guy, there was something that he could extrapolate from each character. And, and, you know, I, that really meant something to me. I didn't end up hiring, but I liked hiring him, but I liked <laughs> what he said. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So, 
you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Uh, the last question, you know, we just talked about how you kind of worked your way up through the system and, you know, your cast. If you could talk about your cast a little bit, you're obviously directing some heavyweights here. What was yeah. that whole experience like? Um, you know, I learned so much by working with the actors. And I think the biggest thing I learned was that they all need something different. So, you know, Molly Ringwald and Brian Darcy James, they had a lot of questions. They needed to create a backstory for their characters. And, you know, there's some monologues in the film. And I, I noticed that the more Brian did his monologues, you know, the more takes we did, the more he settled in to the monologue and I got a better performance. Whereas some of the younger actors, I found that if I pushed them too far, it was going in the opposite direction where it it wasn't getting better. I think they were getting more frustrated with themselves. So it was just a matter of figuring out what actors needed what to get that best performance. You know, my lead actor, Brendan Meyer, I mean, I I joke with him that I I actually don't think he's human because every take he did was right on. And if I were to critique myself, I would say he was so spot on with what I wanted him to do, but I should have let him take risks. And I didn't because I was so happy with what he was giving me every single time. But had I asked him to do a different way just for editing purposes, I could have had more to work with. So that was something that I needed to learn with him, that although he was giving me, he was laser every single time, I should have had the foresight on set to ask him to do it differently just in case. Well, you're dropping a master class right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, Melissa. Uh, you know, for folks that are listening that want to find out more about the film, follow you guys on social media. How can they do that? Um, I mean, they can follow me, which is at Mel B. Miller, I think, on my Instagram. Um, Moments the movie, we haven't really gone nuts with our social media yet, but once we, uh, once the movie comes out, we'll we'll go into all that. But I think that's the best part place to watch it on my Instagram, which is at Mel B. Miller. It's writer director Melissa Miller Costanzo of all these small moments. Melissa, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Kevin. I had so much fun. Let's take a quick break for promos. Stay tuned. What if you could have a film critic, film festival director, film publicist, and fellow filmmaker guide you with your film's PR and marketing journey from pre-production to post? I'm Kevin Sampson, and my online course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker, does just that. In this course, I'm going to teach you how to set up your film to engage an audience and build a community long before you call action. I'll show you how to approach critics to make them aware of your film like publicists do. And as a director of two film festivals, I won't just teach you hacks and secrets to reduce entry fees, but how you can actually use the film festival circuit to create buzz around your film. I'm a huge supporter of diverse storytelling in film, and I believe the most unique voices come from indie filmmakers. That's who I've supported over the years with my show Picture Lock, whether on TV or on radio. With as much experience as I've had as an independent filmmaker myself, critic, publicist, and festival director, I realize that most indie filmmakers just need access to the knowledge that big firms provide to achieve success. So in this course, I'm going to demystify some of the process and give you everything I know in a behind the scenes look at the sides of the business you don't always see. So click the link below and get a free preview of the course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Market your film like a pro and become an army of one. 
Hey, everybody. I appreciate everyone that listens to the Picture Lock podcast. And for you, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. If you're like me, then it's been a while since you've sat down and read a book, but it hasn't been long since you listened to a podcast. In fact, you're listening to one right now. Why? Because you're able to be entertained, informed, or educated on the go. That's kind of how I like my books as well. With Audible.com, I can listen to Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces or Robert McKee's story when I'm in the mood for learning about the craft or Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point when I'm trying to learn how to be a better influencer. The point is, a wealth of knowledge is at your fingertips. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com slash picturelock for a free 30-day trial. It's that easy. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash picturelock for a free 30-day trial to Audible. Picture Lock's question of the week a couple of weeks ago was, with all the sequels and reboots coming out this year, what's one film that you would actually like to see rebooted or a sequel to? On the gram, at My Life on Budget said, Coming to America is turning 30 tomorrow. Maybe Hakeem and T'Challa could meet up. Zamunda forever. At Mike S, the producer 13 said, What happened to the reboot of The Last Dragon? At Explore Nollywood, that's X and then P L O R E, Nollywood said, There's Commando, Splash, and I would like to see a Coming to America or a Trading Places, or was it Beverly Hills Cop? It seems like at Explore Nollywood definitely enjoys uh, his Eddie Murphy films, but those are some pretty good choices. At nerdy underscore Neil said, Fantastic Four. I won't give up on this becoming a great franchise. It can be done. On Twitter, at PodcastVag, that's V-A-G, said, The Lost Boys. At JJackieLD said, Black Panthers. (laughs) Shout out to my Uncle Jackie. Finally, on Facebook, Aaron Goodmiller said, The Long Kiss Goodnight, which that was a a classic, probably underrated film. Uh, Shane Black, Samuel L. Jackson, and Gina Davis. That was definitely a good call. All right, so (laughs) appreciate everyone that participated in the question of the week a couple of weeks ago. This week's question with eighth grade coming out. Name a movie that describes your middle school or high school experience. Let me know on social media or email me at picturelockshow at gmail.com and I'll read your answer next episode. Hi, everybody. This is Shalise Haas, director producer of Real Boy, and you are listening to Picture Lock with Kevin Sampson. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and through exposing her own biases, award-winning documentary filmmaker Robin Hauser highlights the nature of implicit bias, the grip it holds on our social and professional lives, and what it will take to induce change in her new film, Bias. I have director-producer Robin Hauser on the line. Robin, welcome to Picture Lock. Kevin, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm really interested in talking about bias. It it's, looks like such an interesting documentary. The first question I always start out with, though, Robin, when did you first fall in love with film? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I would say, Kevin, it was uh, 2004. I sat in the theater and I watched the documentary Born into Brothels. And if you haven't seen it, it's worth seeing. I don't know really what it was about this story, but 
it taught me that a documentary a documentarian can think that they're going to make a film about something and um, it can turn into something completely different. So that as a documentarian, you have this flexibility to be curious and to explore. Um, and that film spoke to me both on a visual level and an artistic level and on a story and compassion level. So I remember walking out thinking, man, I missed my calling. I, I got I to gotta <laughs> change things up and do something. <laughs> right. So it, it did take me um, quite a while, you know, as eight or nine years later that I finally started um, had the courage to to jump in and start making films. But that that film really inspired me. Yeah, that is a great film. And isn't that the doc where she gave uh, cameras to all of the kids? Exactly. But she went over to Calcutta thinking she was going to do a story about these um, uh, prostitutes. And she ended up doing the story about the children that were born to these prostitutes. Um, And that was really sort of the richest in the story. And it just showed how flexible you have to be as a documentarian you don't have it even if you think you have a script things change you really have no control and there's something really exciting about that right and that's what I always say when it comes to documentary it's like you automatically you set out and you're like this is what I'm going to be making this film about and then the documentary tells you no actually it's about this um, right. So if we could, let's get a little background. Um, how did you get into the industry? Because I, I think it's it's interesting that you said, you know, 2004 and then you kind of switched it up. And then in 2015, Code Debugging the Gender Gap premiered at Tribeca. So uh, what happened, I guess, in that span of time? Well, my, my first film um, was actually called uh, Running for Jim, and it's on Amazon now. It's a story about a um, high school cross-country team, a woman's cross-country team in high school, and their coach who had Lou Gehrig's disease. And it's this inspiring story about these girls who are at sort of the peak of their athleticism and what they're doing to try to make him the winningest coach in in. California history. At the same time, he is at sort of the cusp of having this disease, which is taking away his mobility, and he's sort of descending. Um, and it's a it's a story about how they work things out together. Um, I didn't. My daughter was on that team, and listen, I don't recommend anybody making a film that involves their teenage daughter. But um, <laughs> there were some incidents that happened. It got some international attention, and the story um, was going to be made whether I was involved or not. So I decided to sort of jump in and turn things around and make the story about Lou Gehrig's disease and why there isn't a cure for ALS yet and how important that is. Um, so that was my first story. And after after I got done with that film, I thought, okay, now I know what I'm doing. Now I feel a little bit more like I know what I'm doing. Now I can build a team around me of really qualified and skilled um, and experienced filmmakers and, you know, together um, jump in on some of these issues that people don't talk about that we've been sort of, you know, sweeping under the rug for a long time. And the lack of women and people of color um, in tech in engineering computer science was uh, a story that to me just I I couldn't understand it I was really curious if there's such incredibly high paying jobs if we have a lack of engineers in this country Um, I read a statistic that said by the year 2020 there'd be over a million unfilled software engineering jobs in the United States alone I thought what yeah and I thought that's crazy why aren't we doing more to encourage people other than you know men to get into this business Mm -hmm. um so that's what got me inspired to make Code Debugging the Gender Gap. And then when I was on doing a lot of, I mean, that, I thought that film maybe would speak to people in Silicon Valley, maybe Silicon Alley. That <laughs> film's been to, it's been to 78 countries. Oh, wow. It's crazy. And I learned that really sort of 
what we did, maybe somewhat unwittingly, is we touched upon issue that women and people of color and minorities in general face not just in tech but across industries. So the films, they have screened it in Cambodia, in Bahrain, you know, in, I mean, all over the place. It's crazy. So out of discussions, um, post-screening discussions from that film, I started really hearing the term unconscious bias a lot. And I thought, what the heck is that? And, you know, do we all have it? Is there anything we can do about it? So the more I learned, the more I investigated, learned about unconscious bias, the more I realized that it might be sort of this underlying force that causes a lot of the harmful things we have in society, like sexism, racism, ageism, and understanding that diving in in a film about bias was going to be really hard. You know, we'd be sitting there for a couple of days, right, in the theater if I were to cover everything. There's right. so many biases in this world. So for the for the sake of this film, I narrowed it down to racial and gender bias. And um, because I am a privileged white woman, I learned about halfway through making the film that probably the only way people would really think that this is authentic and, and want to even listen to what I've learned um, was if I exposed my own self in this in this film and expose my own biases. So um, I did, I did some of that. And uh, so it's because it's a little bit of a different film because I'm in it, which is not what I set out to do. But again, you have to be flexible when you're a documentarian. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with director, producer, Robin Hauser of the new film bias. Robin, you know, I, I was, I was going to ask you that question uh, as you were speaking, because it seems like you're very self-aware. And so I was thinking, wow, as a white woman, you know, doing this documentary on bias, uh, you know, did that ever come up? And so I am kind of wondering if you if you could, before I get into those questions, I guess, for the audience, kind of in your own words, what is the film all about? Yeah, well, the film's about unconscious bias and how it affects us socially and in the workplace um, you know, understanding that bias is a survival heuristic, really. Um, there are reasons that we have these, that we make snap judgments. But I was curious about you know, how much of that is useful in the modern world and how much of our biases, these snap judgments that we make, I mean, a hundred times a day, how are they impeding our advancement socially or in the workplace? How do they affect the way that we hire, um, the way that we build our social groups, the choices we make in life? And, uh, you know, what's the impact of all that? So that's what the film was about. And it challenges us to confront our own, you know, hidden biases and, and understand what we risk when we follow our gut. Right. And that, that was one of the most surprising things that I learned through this, um, making this film, is that you know, I grew up in a family where they, my parents said to me all the time, well, what do you feel? Trust your gut. Go with your gut. And everything that I've learned from making this film is question your gut. Your gut might be right. It might not be right. So question. <laughs> question your gut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's really, it's really interesting. Um, you know, last night I was actually watching White Right, Meeting the Enemy, the new uh, Netflix documentary. Um, in which uh, Dia Khan goes and she talks with white supremacists and, um, you know, just getting their side of the story. And I thought it was actually fascinating because mm -hmm. as the documentary kind of goes on, you kind of see like the, the human side of them. You know, a lot of times we just 
as you say, we kind of have our own like bias and our own uh, thoughts of who that type of person is. Um, but we're able to find this middle ground. Like it, it's really, it's really interesting, Doc. And um, so I'm, I'm wondering for you, like what. Like, what challenges did you face as you were making the doc, right? Because you got a couple of challenges. One, you're making a documentary. <laughs> and then two, throwing yourself into it, I'm sure that had to, like, help you to stretch as a person. So I'm just wondering, what were some of those challenges that you faced um, while making it? Well, you're, you're right. I mean, I had to sort of let go of all vanity you know on, on a series on a bunch of different fronts I mean first of all just to be on a big screen at my age you know um, but also I, I think just getting to the point where I was able to say okay fine I'll take an implicit association test and right there on the screen I show that I have a moderate association of um, weapons and black Americans and harmless objects and white Americans now, you know, every one of us, me included, wants to think that we are fair and open-minded and not not racially biased. And that was shocking when I found that out. And, and, and for, I mean, I did grow up in a pretty white neighborhood. So I had a sense that I would probably, even though I don't, obviously, you know, I don't intentionally have that association. But whether it's through societal messaging, whether it's through watching the news, through, you know, television, books, any of any type of form of media, um, I have developed that association that, that I'm shameful of. Um, and I think it may be even more surprising as a, as a woman who believes in, you know, equal rights, um, gender rights. I mean, I, I consider myself a womanist and an equalist and a feminist. And um, I show a strong association with women and family and men in career. And that one blew me away. Mm. I was like, no, 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 no. This test has got to be wrong. I'm going to take it again. <laughs> right. And I did take it again and again. And I didn't, my score didn't change. Mm. So that, that went through me. And I thought, how is that possible? And it just goes to show that these are associations. You can't cheat this test, the implicit association test, right? So this just goes to show that it's really hard for a lot of us that grew up in traditional families to disassociate the word, um, say, you know, mom from kitchen versus a briefcase to man or dad. Right. We just we, that's a super easy association to make for us. So anyway, that was uh, that was humbling and interesting. <laughs> and um, the other really interesting thing is that. None of us feel like we're biased. And I, as David Rock says in the film, just like you can't do two math problems in your head at once, it's also really hard to see your own biases. Now, I might know that I'm biased towards, say, yellow labs because I was bit by one when I was five years old. But I'm think about all the biases that I have, all these snap judgments and assumptions I make every day about people when I just look at them for a split second that I don't even really consciously think I'm doing. But it has to do with our gut about people. Who do I want to hire? The person that sort of looks like me, the person that went to UC Berkeley, the person that's a runner, the person that's, you know, that I can really identify with because it seems like she's very much like me. That's the safe person for me to hire because it's the most comfortable one. But mm. it's not necessarily the best choice for my team, for my business, right? Right. We all know that diversity is better. 
But many of us suffer from like me bias. It's the easy thing to do. That's why Silicon Valley looks the way it does. Because they're all hiring their buddies. <laughs> right, exactly. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. And uh, we're keeping it real with director and producer Robin Hauser of the new film, Bias. Robin, as we kind of wrap out here, what's been the reception so far? I know the film is on the festival circuit. What's been audience reception? I've, I've had I've had really great um, comments and reception. Uh, luckily, I've only done what I think five screenings, um, and two of those were, were private, closed audiences. Um, but the, I've I've had people actually. I think I screened um, a little while ago, and there were maybe three African Americans in the room and forty um, white and Asian, let's say. But I specifically two. Um, African-Americans, one man and one woman came up to me and said, that was brave and we really appreciate what you're doing. And, and you know, that type of uh, feedback from me is great because it's true. You know, I mean, there's a scene in the film where I go into a virtual reality experience and I um, turn into a black woman. And it's a study about how much I mimic um, the behavior of uh, a black woman who's with me in the virtual room Um when I'm in my white body versus in my black body. And and that's a really interesting experience. And for me, it was a profound experience. Um, so I do really put myself out there and listen, I am, I am not cured of bias by any means, <laughs> but I, but I think I'm much more aware of my own sort of fallibility and just my humanness in that I, in that I have these biases and I should really check myself. And I think that's what I, I'm hoping that, that how the film is received by people that everybody walks out of the theater thinking, wow, man, you know, is it me? Right. Because um, it, cause it, it likely is. It's all of us. Well, that sounds great. How could people follow you on social media finding out more about the film? Yeah, so biasfilm.com is our website, and that'll list our film festivals that we're going to, um, at biasfilm on, on Twitter. And uh, we've got Instagram, just look up Bias Film. So we're Facebook, same thing. Um, we'd love to uh, gain some momentum and bring people into the theaters. We'll be at the Mill Valley Film Festival in October. Uh, we'll be at Napa Valley Film Festival in November. We'll be out in Naples, Florida um, for that film festival. That's in October as well, I believe. Uh, and we're going to Docuton, Utah. So we've got which is uh, end of August. So we've got a bunch of things. We're still waiting to hear from a bunch of other film festivals. And then um, we're also doing private corporate screenings, private community screenings. So you can get on our website if anybody's interested in showing the film um, at their business. It's a great alternative to unconscious bias training. Awesome. Director, producer, Robin Hauser of the new film, Bias. Thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Kevin, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody, this is Michael Lumpkin, director of AFI Docs, and you're listening to Picture Lock. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and the judge provides rare insight into Sharia law, an often misunderstood legal framework for Muslims, told through the eyes of the first woman judge to be appointed to the Middle East religious courts. I have director producer Erica Cohn on the line. Erica, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Uh, Erica, the first question I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? Well, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and started attending the Sundance Film Festival at a very young age, which is where I first fell in love with independent film. And 
I deeply felt, you know, the power of cinema and kind of craved the feeling of being transported into different worlds and places and cultures for a couple of hours. So when I was 15, I had a chance to make my first film and was mentored by a local youth media program in conjunction with the Sundance Institute. And at that time, I was really struggling with how to self-identify as a non-Mormon, because at that time, you know, Salt Lake was a predominantly Mormon community. And I came from an interfaith family and, you know, in, in a city in Salt Lake, which really defines where, um, where faith defines who a person is. And so film became a catalyst for me to express kind of my frustrations with the socio-cultural religious alienation and to heal intergenerational wounds within my family. And after that experience, I became really committed to providing a platform for unheard, unheard voices to be heard and untold stories to be told. And that's kind of how it all started. Hmm. So interesting. So, so, so usually, okay, so usually, uh, you know, Eric, if somebody says like, you know, it was Raiders of the Lost Ark or, you know, it was E.T. <laughs> or whatever the case may be. So you went deep for me. So it threw me for a loop for a second. Um, however, I, I do think this is really interesting. Um, so obviously at an early um, point in your life, you realize that film can allow you to uh, give a voice to the voiceless. Yeah, or to amplify voices or to really use that as a platform to express how I was feeling or how I was perceiving the world. Got it. So if you could, like, give us a little history lesson in your backstory. Um, how did you be- break into the film industry? So I started, you know, working in the industry very young after this project with the Sundance Institute. Um, when I was 15, I after that, that film did very well in the, in the festival circuit, and I continued making um, short films for the festival circuit and began working for producers and directors who were coming to Sundance um, as, you know, working as an intern and then a production assistant and then went to film school at Chapman University um, and continued working my way up and continued nurturing those relationships that I had from a young age and um, uh, started working on PBS series as an associate producer and then uh, transitioned to my first film in Football We Trust. Um, which I started in 2010 and then uh, premiered at Sundance about three years ago and was also broadcast on, on PBS's Independent Lens. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I am talking with director-producer of The Judge, Erica Cohn. Erica, I- I'd love to just kind of jump straight into The Judge. This is, this is a fascinating yeah. film, um, and I think it's such a, a timely film. Uh, but in your own words, what is The Judge all about? So the judge is a portrait of the first woman judge to be, a por- to be appointed to the Sharia law courts or Islamic law courts in the Middle East. If you could, like, how did this material, you know, kind of come across your desk? How did you get attached to it? What inspired you to create the film? Well, it's really interesting. And I think that we're all, you know, filmmakers, we're put in these unique positions and, you know, find our ways into these very bizarre, very special circumstances. Um, and so I was on shooting hiatus with my last film, Football We Trust, and I had received a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship to teach film in Israel-Palestine and to continue my postgraduate research in Islamic feminism. I had studied Islamic feminism many years before, and this was a chance to kind of continue that while being on hiatus. Excuse me. 
And so one day a dear friend and colleague invited me to attend this Sharia law reform meeting in, in Ramallah, which is kind of the, the capital of the West Bank in Palestine. And I was welcomed into this large conference room filled with images of Yasser Arafat throughout the years, hanging in old picture frames and kind of seated at this table surrounded by male judges and really pinching myself that I was even allowed to be in this room. And then all of a sudden, Judge Khulud walked in and everyone stood to greet her. And she had this tremendous presence that really radiated throughout the room. You could feel like the command, her her aura. And as I listened to her speak throughout this meeting about how Palestine's legal challenges disproportionately affect women, I immediately wanted to know more. And after the meeting, we had a chance to officially engage, and I told her I was a filmmaker, and she invited me into her courtroom. And the moment that I walked into her courtroom, that was the moment I knew there needed to be a film made about this incredible, incredible woman. And I pitched her the idea, and she loved it and said, actually, I've been waiting for someone to come along. (laughs) I love that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was very special. Yeah, so I, I just from the trailer, you can see, um, as you said, you know, the the aura of, um, of her presence, and and can you talk a bit about the cultural respect, uh, and the way that as a documentary filmmaker, you know, perhaps. I could say something as stupid as, um, yeah, why would you not, you know, give women a chance, right? But yet, culturally and historically, Sharia law didn't allow female judges. And so talk about, about, as a filmmaker, how you have to get the trust of not only your subjects, but then also be respectful of a culture and their ways in telling this story that I think to some people might be like, wow, why, you know, this, why hasn't this happened yet? Mm. So for, I mean, I, I speak Arabic, not fluently, but conversationally. And I think that that was, you know, really key to, to being able to do this film and had a wealth of knowledge of Islamic feminism and the history of Islam and how women's roles throughout history were written out of not only religious history, but also history, I think, in, in general. And I don't think that Islam is unique in that way. I think that it's been, um, you know, women's roles throughout history have been continuously diminished regardless of of what religious sect we're talking about. Um, And so I approached this with tremendous sensitivity and tremendous knowledge from from the beginning. Um, And there was a key learning moment for me in this when I asked Judge Hulud, you know, do you ever feel at odds with the Sharia, being a feminist, being, you know, someone who wants to help women through the law? And she said, no, absolutely not. The problem is not within the Sharia itself. It's within the interpretation or rather misinterpretation of the law. And that was something that really stuck with me because that's a parallel we have here in the U.S. I mean, we have our own problems with women in the law, um, obviously, and women not, not enough Supreme Court justices. Um, if there's a parallel there. But then further, I think the law always benefits people who are in power. So if you don't have people interpreting and implementing the law, you know, in a, in a way that reflects the population in which they're supposed to serve, we'll never have justice. It's never, we'll never have equality. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And uh, furthermore, is why it's, folks should definitely check out this 
uh, documentary. Uh, wrapping things out here, Erica, um, I have to imagine that the conversations after the lights go up on this film are just uh, phenomenal. Uh, what's been the audience reception of the film thus far? Yeah, I think people are not exposed to women in Islam or women in the Middle East as leaders. I think our media, our Western media, likes to portray women as victims and to hype up kind of the the anti-Sharia um, sentiment, the Islamophobic sentiments. Um, so it was it was pretty surprising to want to see Palestine in a way that had never been portrayed before, to see women in these incredible leadership roles that they had never seen before, to see women in, you know, the hijab, the, the headscarf in these prominent roles. Um, so there's a, a lot of questions like how, you know, I've never seen this before or um, this, is, this is someone that I personally relate to. This is someone that's just like me, you know, how uh, I'm struggling with how to deal with, you know, the fact that I've been kept in the dark for so long. Yeah, man, this is great. So for the audience that's listening, if they want to follow the film, find out more about you guys online, social media, how can they do that? We're at thejudgefilm.com. And we are, we just finished our U.S. theatrical release. We are in the midst of finishing up our festival release and uh, can also um, be available to whoever wants to host a screening. Then later this year, we'll be on PBS's Independent Lens, followed by our release on Amazon. So find us at thejudgefilm.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at The Judge Film as well. Director and producer of The Judge, Erica Cohn. Thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guests, Richie Winsler, Melissa Miller-Costanzo, Robin Hauser, and Erica Cohn for coming on the show. Be sure to catch up on back episodes of the podcast and subscribe in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast. In fact, if you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock and tune in and I'll come right up. Please feel free to give a five-star review of the show as well. Only helps to get it out to more people. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Be sure to follow me on the Stardust app for my quick movie TV and trailer reviews. Just look up at Picture Lock Show and you got me. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash picture lock show and subscribe. I've been putting out, trying to put out consistently movie reviews. And it seems like I've been favoring Netflix because I can just easily access it from home. Uh, but I do have my latest thoughts on The First Purge, which I thought really kind of struck a chord with me in terms of uh, the real life application. The First Purge really just felt like it could be America in 10 years if we don't get this right here so make sure you go over to youtube.com slash picture lock show and subscribe if you're interested in being a guest on the show you can fill out the form on the website again this week's question of the week name a movie that describes your middle or high school experience send me an email and let me know at picture lock show at gmail.com or on any of picture lock social media pages and i'll talk about it on the air next week all music is done by Mike S. The Prophet 13. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film.
What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started Picture Lock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR, finally, a partner as passionate as you.